Hello and welcome to the weekly sermon by White Sulphur Baptist of Georgetown, Kentucky. We hope that you find this resource encouraging and helpful. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, but we would love to see you in person on Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Thanks again for tuning in. All right, good morning, White Sulphur. It's good to see you all. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 13 this morning. I'll give you a head start. You can go ahead and find that. Mark chapter 13. And we're going to cover the whole chapter this morning. So we're going to be covering a lot of ground. Uh, but before we get there, there's just a couple of things that I believe are just worthy of celebrating that are going on in our church at the moment. So the first, and we've talked about this a couple of times, but I just want to put another reminder out there that we have a couple of baptisms coming up. Um, and so if that's something that you're interested in, if that's something that you haven't done before, or you have, just have questions about it, uh, find me and let's talk about it. This, uh, this is a great opportunity for anyone that would be interested in that, but just the fact the Lord is working in our church, right? And there's, there's hearts that are being led in that direction. That's something worthy of celebrating. Uh, next week, uh, David Rogers is going to be preaching for us. So excited about that, that the Lord has blessed us, blessed our church in a way that we have uh, more than one man qualified to stand in the pulpit, right? And that's, a, that's something that a lot of churches don't have. And so that's something to celebrate. Also, during this week, uh, I have heard multiple stories about uh, you guys, right? The church doing personal evangelism. So whether you know it's in a, in a bait shop or at a trunk or treat or whatever, I've heard multiple stories about um, the gospel just being shared with people who need to hear it, right? There's light going out in dark world in a dark community. And, you know, people ask me uh, kind of often, you know, so, so what's the plan? What's the strategy for, you know, reaching the community? And it really, guys, it boils down to you, that the church is the plan, the church, right? The hands and feet of the Lord. And so it's us going out there. And the greatest hindrance to evangelism is just Christians not sharing their faith with those who are around them. But you're doing that. Like, I'm hearing these stories. You know, no one knew that each other was telling me about this. And so it's just been encouraging to hear that the Lord is being faithful to us in that way. And then specifically last night, I know Luke talked about it a little bit already, and it was brought up in announcements. But just once again, um, we had an opportunity last night to just be out there, right, Ex- exposed to the community and uh, pass out these cards, inviting people to church, having conversations with people. And we did have some good conversations. We talked with some people that said, hey, I'm actually looking for a church right now, right? And so we were able to make some of those connections. We passed out like 75 bags of candy. I think Luke ate 100 bags while we were there. So no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. He's not even here to defend himself. Look at that. That's terrible. Anyways, there's lots of stuff that is good. There's stuff to celebrate, right, that the Lord is doing in and through our church and our community. And so I just want to keep bringing those to the forefront for you guys to be thinking about me, praying about uh, praising him in our prayers and praying and petitioning him to continue doing those things for us. So with that, we'll get back into our series in Mark. So if you remember, we started this series back in February. We took a break during summer to go through some Psalms. We're back in it now. Uh, We called this series Good News for Hard Times, right? It's up there on the screen. And that, that title really comes from the very first verse of the Gospel of Mark. So if you were to go back and look at Mark 1, verse 1, this is how Mark starts off his Gospel. He says, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we said back during that introduction that gospel is translated good news. That's what it means, right? It's the good news of Jesus Christ. And so the very first thing Mark wants on our minds is that what he's about to tell us is good news. Something to rejoice in. Something to hang on to, right? When times are difficult and trying. 
So from his incarnation, right, when he's uh, God become man in the flesh, that's good news. And everything in between is good news. There's nothing about this gospel that isn't good news. So from then to his crucifixion, which in some ways is the most terrible day in human history, and in most ways is the best day in human history, right? Because the God-man is, is slain, the one who was the only sinless person on the earth dies, right, for those who are sinful. And so that is still good news for us, even as horrible as it is. And then his resurrection, which is wonderful news we celebrate, right, around Easter time, is that Jesus conquered death, that the grave could not hold him any longer, that he had power over those things, and by doing so, proves that he can keep his promise to us of resurrection and eternal life. That's good news for us. His ascension into heaven, that he goes to prepare a place for his people. That's good news for us as Christians. And finally, his return, right? His second coming, his return in the future to come back and get us, to come back and grab the saints and take them home, right? To make all things new, a final judgment on everything that uh, will be redeemed back to himself. And so this morning, that's what we're going to be focusing on is that last part of the good news. In our passage, Jesus kind of jumps forward, right? Gives them a glimpse into the future. But the thing is, and this is what we have to remember going into our passage, Mark 13, this morning, is that it really is just a glimpse. That we're getting just a little little sliver of a view, right, into what's going to happen. And it's not perfectly clear. And it is still a little bit blurry. It's not exhaustive teaching on end times. It's just enough. Right? We've talked about throughout the series that as Jesus has prepared his disciples and as he's been teaching them, he gives them what they need for the moment. We even see that kind of reflected in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us what we need for the moment to be faithful to you. Right? And too much water can drown a plant. Too much information can drown a Christian. That's what I believe we see as Jesus is teaching his disciples. There's a couple of, well, I'll say there's a handful of uh, hills that we have to die on. As Christians, things that we have to believe, otherwise it's just not Christianity anymore. So those would be things like the deity and the humanity of Christ. That Jesus is God 100% and he's 100% man. That is what the Bible communicates about who Jesus is. That he is both of those things, no less one or the other. Another would be the infallibility of scripture. That the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is without error. It does not err in anything that it teaches or anything that it speaks on. The virgin birth, we absolutely affirm the virgin birth of Christ. The Trinity, three persons, one God. We are Trinitarian Christians. And fifth, the second coming of Christ. We believe that he is coming back. You have to believe that to be a Christian, right? You have to believe that he's coming back. And unfortunately, there are groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses that that, uh, get this wrong. They believe that he has returned. They believe that the world basically missed it. That's outside of the realm of Christianity. That's not a Christian teaching. And so we need to be careful of things like that. We affirm that Jesus has not returned yet and that he's going to return for us. Now, the minute details of how and when that plays out, that's where there's room for discussion and debate and charitable disagreement amongst Christians. How those things take place are not necessarily a hill to die on. For Christians, See, your specific view of eschatology uh, is not something, eschatology being the study of the end times, that's not something that should necessarily divide you from other faithful Bible-believing Christians, right? How those things play out, we can 
dig deep in, and we should. We can study well and have convictions and know exactly what we believe, but it's not something that should cause pride to well up in our hearts when we realize that someone else views some things differently on that timeline. Right? We shouldn't be looking down on other Christians based on how they view these things. You know, I have my own opinions about how all of this is going to play out. But here's the thing about what I'm doing here this morning is that the pulpit is not meant for opinions. Right? The pulpit is not the place for me to chase the theological rabbit trails that are so tempting right? that I would love to be able to follow. The, the pulpit is the place to bring the word of God to bring conviction of what I know that it says 100% being convinced in my heart before I bring it to you. So my goal each week is when I step into the pulpit is basically I've been working all week to put together a meal, right? We can look at it like that. Thanksgiving's coming up. That's heavy on my mind, right? I'm looking forward to those kinds of meals that I only get once a year. And so every Sunday I come and I basically bring a meal. Jesus calls uh, himself the bread of life. Bring this meal to you all that's been prepared. But here's the thing is that then you have to sit down at the table and you have to pick up utensils and you have to eat. Because I can bring the food here. I can prepare the meal, but I can't make you eat. And so as you go throughout the week, this is maybe something that you sit down and you dig more into. Or or maybe you want to meet up and we have more conversations about it. That's wonderful. I would love to do that with you. But this morning, my goal is to capture what we know Jesus is trying to communicate in this text, and the big ideas of how it relates to our life right now, not just the scary future, okay? So with that, let's pray together, and then we'll read our passage. Father, thank you for the way that you are working in this church and through this church into our community. Thank you for the encouragements that you have given to us. Thank you for the ways that we've seen lives begin to change because you're at work in people's hearts. Father, I pray that you would Keep us faithful and diligent and watchful as we live this life as an outpost of heaven behind enemy lines. Father, we know that you are glorious and that you're gracious to us, that you have given us so many things that we don't deserve. We're just thankful for that. We just want to lift up praises to you as we approach your word. Father, as we begin to read the very words of God, I pray that you would let distractions flee from the room, that you would settle hearts and minds and that just for a few moments we would be able to focus on you that we would see how your word does relate to our lives how this isn't just some old book but how you're speaking to us through what you have preserved for us and father i pray that my words are for your people's good and to your glory this morning i pray these things in jesus christ's name amen all right Chapter 13, starting in verse 1, we're going to read the whole chapter together. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. And Jesus said to them, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus told them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it is not yet 
the end. For nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. But you be on your guard. They will hand you over to local courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. And it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. So then they arrest you and hand you over. Don't you worry beforehand what you will say, but say whatever is given to you at that time, for it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down or go in to get anything out of his house. And a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray it won't happen in winter, for those will be days of tribulation, the kind that has been from the beginning of creation until now and never will be again. If the Lord had not cut those days short, no one would be saved. But he cut those days short for the sake of the elect whom he chose. Then if anyone tells you, see, here is the Messiah, see there, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And you must watch. I have told you everything in advance. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will be falling from the sky and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branches become tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now concerning that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So watch, be alert, for you don't know when the time is coming. It is like a man on a journey who left his house and gave authority to his servants, gave each one his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore be alert, since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or at the crowing of the rooster or early in the morning. Otherwise, when he comes suddenly, he might find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert. All right, that's our passage for this morning, Mark chapter 13. And uh, what I wanted to do this morning, something a little bit different than I normally would. I have an illustration that I want to put up on the screen, Troy, if you don't mind clicking to that next one for me. Uh, How many of you guys, let's see, perfect, okay. How many of you guys have had the opportunity to just kind of stand and take in a scene like that, just overlooking some mountains, right? Where maybe it's the Smokies, right? If you're California, it's the Sierra Nevada, wherever you're from, you kind of have your mountains, right? The ones you're familiar with, the ones that you know. And, And if you've had the opportunity to stay out there for a night or be out there for an early morning, you've probably seen a scene kind of like this 
where you look out on the mountains and you can see them all kind of stacked up, right? You can see them just like this. The closest ones, the medium, the ones way out there. And you see they're kind of different colors because the distance between you and the mountains determines the light that's in between them and all of that stuff. So this is the view that you have when you're looking at a mountain range. And there's something called the prophetic view. The theologians call the prophetic view when you're looking at prophecy in Scripture. So where we stand, right, or where the, the author is writing from, the prophet or Jesus in this moment, when, he, when he's talking about things that are going to come in the future, the way he's talking, it sounds like they can be all stacked up right against each other, right? And these mountains, when you look at them, they look like they're probably very close to each other. But if you were to get a bird's eye view, if you were to look down at them, from, from above them, you would see that they are probably 60, 80, sometimes 100 miles spaced out from each other. But from where we stand, it looked like they're all going to happen like this, right? Like right back to back, right against each other. They're all very close. And so what we need to do is remember this idea of the prophetic view when we're reading anything that has to do with prophecy in Scripture. Because sometimes it's hard to tell just how far apart events are. Right? Unless you're looking at it from God's perspective, which is his looking from the top down. So this morning, we're going to explore some of these mountains that are found in Mark 13. And again, the point today isn't to try and understand every single detail that we could dissect out of this. But our point this morning is to try and discern our responsibility as these things unfold. Does that make sense? Like we're told very clearly we can't know exactly when these things are going to happen. But we do have some things that are very clear as far as our responsibility waiting for them to begin and our responsibility once they begin. We see this in 13, starting in verse 1. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. So we could see this prediction of the temple's destruction really as the first mountain that they would come to, right? That one's already behind us, actually. That one was predicted, and that one took place. And so from where the disciples stood in history, that would have been the closest one to them. The, uh, Jerusalem was sacked about 40 years after Jesus predicted the fall of the temple, and the temple did fall all the way to the foundation, like he said it would. Now, after this point, those are where we, it's harder to tell exactly how far out the mountains are. Right? We can see them, but they're different shades and different colors because there's different distances between them. So we have predictions of wars and natural disasters and famines and persecution against Christians, false messiahs, false prophets, all of those things. But then the undeniable mountain at the end of the mountain range is the second coming of the Lord. That one we know is going to happen. That one we know is before us. That one will be unmistakable when it comes. And we're going to be jumping around in, ver- in chapter 13 this morning, so just bear with me. But in verse 24 it says, But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will be falling from the sky. The powers in heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. That's an unmistakable event. When the moon goes dark, when stars start to fall, this will be something that cannot be missed by us. But until then, point one is that we need to stay vigilant. You pay attention to world events, right? Pay attention to what's going on around us. Be vigilant. Watch the headlines, but don't build your theology 
on news headlines. That's a temptation, especially right now. It's crazy how (laughs) preaching through a book of the Bible can be so timely. We've seen this in our Sunday school class also. But obviously I didn't plan that everything would be going on in Israel when I decided to preach through Mark and happened to land on this chapter in this week. But the Holy Spirit sets the agenda when we just decide to preach through the Bible like we've been doing. So we don't build our theology based on headlines. We have to be careful that we don't in in one moment say, well, the the media is untrustworthy and it's it's fake news. And then on the other hand, try to say, well, I'm going to build my theology on the end times based on their very headlines. That's an inconsistency that we need to be careful of as Christians. So staying vigilant is not about cracking some code, right? It's not about trying to put pieces of a puzzle together to find out exactly the day or the hour when he's coming back or exactly how it's going to happen because he says we can't. That's very clear in Mark 13. In fact, Jesus says explicitly that these things are unknown to everyone except the Father. So when he appears, the signs will be things like the moon going dark and the stars falling, things that cannot be missed. Verse 32 says, Now concerning that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So watch, be alert, for you don't know when the time is coming. So if we we aren't supposed to be vigilant and watchful, right, to figure out exactly when the time will be, then what is all this language about? When it says be watchful, be vigilant, be on alert, what, like, what is he meaning by those things? These warnings are for us to be vigilant regarding false teachers, false messiahs, and persecution. Look at verse 5. Jesus told them, watch out that no one deceives you. Verse 6, many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. And then jump to verse 9. But you, be on guard. They will hand you over to local courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. So we have seen both of these things play out throughout human history. False teachers, false prophets come along, right? People latch on to them, and people get hurt. And the reason that people find that people are really susceptible to falling prey to these false messiahs is because we so badly want Jesus to be here, right? We, I mean, I hope, I hope so. Like, we, we want Jesus to come back. We want Jesus to be with us. We want the new heavens. We want the new earth. And so how tempting is it when someone shows up and says, guess what? I'm Jesus, right? And maybe they can perform something. Maybe there are some, some very interesting signs and wonders and miracles that come along with their statement about being Christ. We're warned about all these things. We're warned to be watchful, right? To stay alert. I, I, I uh, put an example in here. Uh, I'm sure many of you know what happened at, at Jonestown, right? The cult that was in California and moved to Central or uh, South America, uh, this uh, happened a long time ago, but it's still kind of in our conscious. Like, it comes up a lot, and people know about it. There was a guy that, that uh, decided slowly and progressively that he was Jesus, or that he was divine in some way. And this is what I did, is I, I just put a portion of the article in here, and I just want to read it to you, because it's written from a non-Christian, but listen to what he says, okay? In 1965... Jones, the the guy, the leader of this cult, moved the temple to California. The group established its headquarters in San Francisco, where he, he became heavily involved in political and charitable activity throughout the 1970s. 
Jones developed connections with prominent California politicians and was appointed as chairman of the San Francisco Housing Authority Commission in 1975. Beginning in the late 1960s, reports of abuse began to surface as Jones became increasingly vocal in his rejection of traditional Christianity and began promoting a form of anti-capitalism he called apostolic socialism and making claims of his own divinity. Jones became progressively more controlling of his followers in People's Temple, which at its peak had over 3,000 members. Jones' followers engaged in a communal lifestyle in which they turned over all their income and property to Jones and People's Temple, who directed all aspects of community life. Following a period of negative media publicity and reports of abuse at People's Temple, Jones ordered the construction of the Jonestown Commune in Guyana in 1974. Convinced or compelled many of his followers, uh, he convinced or compelled many of his followers to live there with him. Jones claimed that he was constructing a socialist paradise free from the oppression of the United States government. By 1978, reports surfaced of human rights abuses and accusations that people were being held in Jonestown against their will. U.S. Representative Leo Ryan led a delegation to the commune in November of that year to investigate these reports. And while boarding a return flight with some former temple members who wished to leave, Ryan and four others were murdered by gunmen from Jonestown. Jones then ordered a mass murder-suicide that claimed the lives of 909 commune members, 304 of them children. Almost all of the members died by drinking flavor aid laced with cyanide. Did you catch the language in there about he decided he was Jesus at some point? He started to believe in his own divinity. He started to believe that he was some kind of Messiah. Does that not sound like what we're to be watchful? 909 people died because they so badly wanted to encounter the divine that they left the Bible behind and they followed a false teacher. They so badly wanted that thing that they thought they could kind of get it their own way. The real Jesus wasn't getting here fast enough for them. So they were led to the slaughter by one who promised things that he could not deliver on. We've got to be watchful. And we're not just talking about world events, but our hearts, right? Because at the core of this is a heart issue. The people wanted something so bad that they tried to circumvent the Lord's timing. And the Lord's plan, instead of trusting in the Lord, rooting themselves in the word and his plan. The way that you stay vigilant is by spending more time in your Bibles than watching your favorite news stations or listening to your favorite YouTube or podcasts or reading your favorite end times books. Or listening to preachers who focus on conspiracy and fear. The way that we stay vigilant is by returning to scripture and letting the word shape our minds and our hearts concerning future and current events. And so then we have to stay diligent. We stay vigilant. We stay diligent. Keep your hand on the plow and your eyes toward heaven because the nations need their Savior before he comes back again. Right? Don't don't we see that? He says that it's necessary that the nations be preached, right? That the gospel be preached to the nations. He says in verse 10, and it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. So, connecting what he just said to what he's about to say, so when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say, 
But say whatever is given to you at that time, for it isn't you speaking but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. You see, what you should take away from that is that things are going to get hard for Christians. Things have been hard for Christians. That promise, at least in part, has been kept. The comfort that Christians have um, enjoyed in the United States over the last couple hundred years is an anomaly in church history. It's an anomaly in world history. And in fact, it's an anomaly in the world right now. According to Forbes magazine, right, not a Christian source, and still they confirm these numbers. Forbes magazine, 360 million Christians faced high to severe levels of persecution in 2022. 360 million Christians faced high to severe, that means life-ending persecution in 2022. Jesus tells us in verse 10 that it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. So then this would be a good opportunity to stop and ask ourselves, how necessary do we really feel that it is? Right? I'll just like let you get personal with yourself for a moment. So Jesus says that it's necessary that this happens, but how necessary is it? If you were to look at the way that we spend our money or that we give of our time, do we act like it's necessary? Are we really rallying around missionaries to send them? Are we willing to be sent as a missionary? Are we willing to be sent to the Amen house in town? How necessary do we really believe that this is? Is the gospel being preached necessary enough for you to be willing to suffer for it, even facing death, so that you might have the opportunity to stand before a court one day and share the gospel with people who want to kill you, but they've never heard of the Savior? That's the kind of life that Paul lived. They could not shut Paul up for anything. He would preach in the streets, and they would arrest him. So he would preach to the guy that was arresting him. They would put him in jail, and then he would start preaching to prisoners that were in jail with him. And when they told him that he was, they were going to kill him if he didn't stop, he said, that's great, I'll get to be with Jesus. You couldn't shut Paul up because he knew it was necessary for this to take place. I believe that the, the good works that the Lord is preparing for our church in 2024 are all part of this call to be diligent. You guys, the the world is lost. Hell is hot. Eternity is a very long time. Heaven is real. And we have to act like it is. We have to believe it is. We have to demonstrate by our actions that it is necessary that the nations be reached before he comes back. And so in the midst of all that, which feels heavy, maybe scary as we're looking around at what's happening in the world right now, we stay hopeful. We live as if he's coming tomorrow, but we plan like you have a thousand years left. All right, that's the tension that I think we have to live in. We live our personal lives like, just like he's coming back tomorrow, but we plan to reach the nations like we have a thousand years left. We start building for a future where people will hear of Christ. It says, but in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will be falling from the sky and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. We can read that. 
And we can think doom and gloom and scary, maybe like that movie 2012 where the world's like splitting in half, right? And no one knows what to do and it's just sad. That's not how the New Testament authors read this gospel. Listen to what Paul says in Titus 2, 11 through 15. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse us for himself, a people of his own possession, eager to do good works. He says, proclaim these things, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So you have to see the connection that he's making. He is talking about the end times, right? But do you hear the hopeful tone in his voice? Do you hear the encouragement that he's giving to Titus as Titus is starting to pastor a church? He says, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, he gave himself up for us to redeem for himself a people from all lawlessness, to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. So what does our theology of end times do? How does it work itself out? How does it kind of manifest in our lives? Because Paul is saying that if we really have this blessed hope of the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, then we'll be eager for good works. That's the right response to contemplating the end times. Because that last mountain of the prophetic view, the return of Jesus, is a day of hope, we don't have to spend our days leading up to it in paranoia and anxiety and fear about what's happening in the world. Because Paul calls, calls it a blessed hope that we are looking forward to. Biblical hope is not wishing. It's not saying, like, I wish that leak under my house would get fixed right now. Right? And I don't know if it is, because I'm going to be the one trying to fix it. Biblical hope is a sure thing. It's something you can count on. It's not wishing. We misuse the word in our culture today. So what do we do? We don't prepare for that day by building bunkers and investing in gold and stockpiling ammo, right? Which, to be honest, like I've got a little bit of prepper in me, okay? So I've got some things going on because I just think it's practical. But the point is that our hope isn't in those things, right? Yes, be diligent. But the end times, there's a hope that we're looking forward to. So we don't prepare like that. Because of the all-consuming hope that we have in Jesus, we prepare by making sure that our souls and the souls around us are prepared to meet their creator at any moment. You prepare by getting back to the word. Right? Having your heart and mind shaped by the word. By being concerned with the people around you. This is an expectant hope that we have. Meaning, like I've said before, that we live each day as if he could return at any moment. But the thing is, the tension that we find is that it's not a short-sighted hope. right? So we want to live expectantly, but also begin to build and strategize missions and evangelism, cast vision for our churches as if they're going to be here another thousand years, even if they're only here another ten days. Do you see that tension? 
that we live in. Because until he comes back, we will be diligent. There is work to be done. And we need to be planning for those things. And here's the thing, that we also need to make it personal. So it's easy to think about eschatology, end times, think about world events, kind of think about big movements throughout history. There's an eschatology of the world, but if you think about it, there's also an eschatology of your life. Your life has an end time. There is a day that you will no longer exist on this earth. How are you planning for that day? There is a day that your existence here comes to an end. And as much as we think about the global end, right, the cosmic end, how tragic would it be to miss your end? Focusing on those things. Where will you spend the next thousand years? Like I said, eternity is a long time. When Jesus returns, he actually, in a sense, he's going to be returning for all people. Right? There's just a negative and a positive side to that. When he returns, he will meet his followers. He will resurrect the dead. The ones that are alive will be there with him. He will greet them. It will be loving. Right? It will be a homecoming. But that's not the case for those that aren't Christians. And that's the reality of the situation. That's why Christians need to be diligent, but that's also why I'm pleading with you in the room who's not a Christian at this moment to be thinking about these things. This is not a fairy tale. This is not something to push off to another day. Nathan, you can join me at this time. I don't want you to hear me this morning saying that end times don't matter because I absolutely believe that they do. How you view the end times really will determine how you live your life. Right? It's extremely practical. It's extremely relevant. I'm getting a lot of questions about it right now because of world events. Right? Everybody's a little bit nervous. Everybody's a little bit unsure of what's going on. But I'm telling you that there's a way that you don't have to be nervous. You can be hopeful. That anytime we study scripture, anytime we study end times, you can go through all of Revelation, all of Daniel, all the prophecies in the Old Testament. And if you come out the other side of that study, anxiety-ridden and paranoid, you miss the point. And I'm just asking you to go back and read it again and consider who the God is that has determined that these things will take place and who has planned the beginning from the end. And if you don't know that God this morning, I don't know how you get through each day, to be honest. Because then the world truly would feel out of control. So if that is something that you are interested in today, if the Holy Spirit is calling on your heart this morning or later this week or whatever time, I'm available. There are faithful Christians in this church that are available. At the end of each service, we do set aside this last song as an intentional time where you can respond to what the Holy Spirit has been doing in your heart and in your life and your mind. So I'm going to give you that time this morning. I'm going to pray for us. Father, Help us to be a people not captured by fear. A people that work hard, that keep our hands to the plow, that keep our eyes toward heaven, that are faithful with what you've entrusted to us, that are watchful to keep the wolves out of the flock. 
Father, give us the urgency in our hearts to reach the lost that are around us, to preach to the nations, to send people to preach to the nations, to be sent, or even just in our own community. Pray that you would give us a bold vision for how you would use White Sulphur Baptist going into the future. Pray that you would make us a body of faithful saints that represent you well to our communities. And I pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace this morning.